Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Has rural America turned a permanent shade of red? Or have Democrats given up competing outside of cities and just stopped listening to rural voters? Chloe Maxman has been pioneering a new style of progressive politics in rural Maine and scoring wins that have earned her national attention. Maxman is a climate activist who graduated from Harvard in 2015, where she and her classmate Canyon Woodward co-founded Divest Harvard, a climate action group. Three years after graduating, Maxman returned to her conservative rural Maine county and twice flipped a Republican seat, first for state representative and then defeating the highest-ranking Republican in Maine and in so doing becoming the youngest woman senator in Maine's history. Woodward was the campaign manager for Maxman's successful 2018 and 2020 campaigns. Maxman and Woodward have teamed up to share their story and give some tough love advice to Democrats about why they've lost rural voters and how they can win them back. Their new book is Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. I began my conversation with Chloe Maxman. Canyon Woodward joins us later in the discussion. And Chloe was sitting outside in her garden when we spoke, so you may hear some birds chirping in the background during our discussion. Chloe Maxman, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit of your story, where you grew up, the kind of family and community that you're from, since that's so central to the story that you tell. It really is. I... I grew up in a small town of 1,600 people in uh, the mid-coast Maine area. Um, my hometown's called Nobleboro, and uh, my family had a had a small farm growing up, and we raised deer and chickens, and had hay fields. And I just I've always been outside working with animals in the land, and it really shaped so much of of how I grew up, and and also how much I I love my home. I also grew up in a quite conservative community, but it's not something that I realized growing up because we didn't really talk about politics or at least that I remember. We really, it was always about, you know, are you a good person? Do you show up when someone is there? You know, and the disappointment always came when when myself or someone else felt like we didn't show up. And so it was just so, so values oriented looking back on it. And it's something that really, shaped shaped who I am you know we didn't really focus on the thing that divides us or the thing that makes us different it was really just about um how do we live together in in a community so what did make you different why did you grow up with values that began to veer off in another direction I you know my 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 family is my parents are both democrats you know and and um I do remember my my parents talking about about democratic politics and you know when I when I look back on my childhood I have this really vivid memory of my parents we, we didn't have cable growing up and so just on the on the local channels they were watching um channel 10 which was airing Clinton's impeachment trial and I think that's my you know my first really vivid memory of politics and obviously that's not that's not a great memory but I think you know, probably like so many other young people out there growing up politics and politicians were always something that disappointed us, that didn't do the right thing, that you know, failed us and broke all the promises that were made during an election season. And so 
um, as I grew up, I didn't have an extreme interest in politics. I was more interested in organizing and community work. But then the more that I did that work, the more I was like, well, hold on a second. I think the root of a lot of our problems is the people that we elect and how they act when they're in office. You end up attending Harvard and maybe just talk a little bit about what that experience was like. This is certainly, you know, a very bohemian uh, place that tries to be sophisticated, a lot different than Nobleboro. What was it like for you to go from rural Maine to Harvard? It was, um, it was a really tough transition for me. I, I mean, I really missed home, really wanted to be back in Maine. Um, and I also just really appreciated like the incredible privilege that it was to, to be able to go to Harvard. Um, you know, that some of the, some of my first friends at Harvard, like Canyon and our other good friend, Hetty, we, you know, we all grew up in rural places and I, I didn't even know it, but I was really, uh, getting pulled towards those folks. Cause I, you know, I think part of what was really interesting to me going to Harvard is just like, how divisive things felt I, I don't really have good words for it you know but it just didn't feel it didn't feel like home it didn't feel like that sense of you know we're all in it together and we're all we're all in, assuming best intentions that didn't that didn't always seem to to translate um I do Canyon is much better at telling this story than I am but when we one of our first experiences together was we had to go get gravel to build out a, a replica of the Keystone XL pipeline for a protest on campus and neither of us had ever ridden a public bus before so we were two first years at Harvard we got on this bus and neither of us knew that we had to press the button for the bus to stop and uh, we went zooming right by where we were supposed to go and we're so confused and you know, it was like little moments like that. They were like, okay, we're just going to get into this different way of living. So one of the things that really put you on the radar of a much larger community was you found, you co-founded Divest Harvard, which very quickly gathered thousands and then tens of thousands of supporters. Uh, talk about what Divest Harvard is, because uh, it still is a very active group. Uh, and why you, where you got the idea to found it? Yeah, I mean, Divest Harvard is a whole movement. You know, it's really, it's so much bigger than I ever will be. Um, and, and really lifted up by so many incredible student organizers. Um, but the, the purpose of Divest Harvard is to get Harvard to stop investing in fossil fuel companies with its $40 billion endowment, um, the largest endowment of any educational institution on the planet. Uh, Harvard actually did divest about a decade after uh, we started the campaign back in 2012. Um, and, you know, yeah, it was just, it was just like such an incredible experience working on Divest Harvard. Canyon and I co-coordinated Divest Harvard together. We, um, you know, we learned so much just being able to organize and learn those tools and skills, which was something that I never had access to, to back home. Um, it's something I, I only saw from afar and, and, uh, you know, I think my, my connection to the divestment movement was, I didn't want Harvard to be investing in ExxonMobil, which was trying to push forward a really destructive fossil fuel infrastructure project in Maine and across New England. So, um, that was my connection to it. And, you know, everyone working on the campaign understands the, 
the dire urgency of, of the climate crisis. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, in September 2021, Harvard announced after years of insisting that it would not, that they would in fact divest their portfolio. So a movement uh, that you and Canyon began uh, uh, clearly caught the attention, not only of so many activists, but of the university itself, um, which uh, is a good segue to what you did. So you graduate from Harvard in 2015. Uh, mm -hmm. And you returned to Maine and three years later decided to run for state representative um, for the district that includes your hometown of Nobleboro. Mm -hmm. Why did you run? Um, you were you were and are very young to run. And uh, ultimately, you became the youngest ever state representative in Maine. Um, that was a that was a pretty uh, bold move to talk about what made you decide to jump in? Mm. Yeah, I I was the youngest woman in the in the house when I got elected, but there have been folks elected much younger than than I have been, just so that all that credit goes to them. Um, but you know, towards the end of college, working on the divestment movement, I I really believed in the in the power of divestment, but I also really felt like we needed more political strategies. You know, we were kind of we were targeting the corporations that influence our politics, but we weren't targeting the politicians that allow corporations to influence our politics. And so I started to turn my focus there after I graduated and worked on different campaigns in, in Maine, worked for, worked for Bernie for a little bit. Um, and I, I just still felt like there was something more to be done. Um, and I think that really became crystallized in my mind when Trump was elected in 2016. You know, I I realized that I was living in this this state house district that had that had voted for Trump. Um, another big theme, you know, sort of two big themes coming out of Trump's election um, for me and for Canyon. One is that Trump in large part got elected because of the rural vote and all of the power that that it, it holds and, and is and is garnering in in our political state these days. The other is that state legislatures were really um, were also really tilting towards the right. You know, the Democrats at, at the national level have have kind of written off rural America and really focused on statewide races, leaving rural voters to trend red and state legislatures to to trend red as well. So it all just kind of seemed like a good moment to to say, you know, hey, what would it look like if if Canyon and I built a campaign in a in a rural red Trump district to really try and understand what's happening in our world these days? And if there's any way to um, shift it, you know, not that we can shift the entire American politics by winning one small state house district in Maine, but I think we were both just real reeling at what um, what hometowns like ours were were kind of contributing to nationwide and wanted to wanted to go in and see what it was what it was all about. You describe uh, Chloe in Dirt Road Revival um, the odyssey of your campaign as you went down these dirt roads. Would go to up to trailers. Some of them would be sporting Trump flags. Talk about some of the conversations that you had with people who may have had been Trump supporters or just in some way were clearly of a very different political stripe than you. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is an experience that probably a lot of rural, rural Democratic candidates have had. Um, you know, I don't think it's unique to what we experienced, but it was definitely eye-opening for me having conversations every day with rural Republicans and independents who had never been contacted by Democrats before. And, you know, I think in my mind, it was like, oh, if they haven't been contacted by Democrats before, there's probably not a lot of common ground there. You know, they're not going to vote for a Democrat. But actually, there was so much common ground there. I mean, the conversations were genuinely life-changing, understanding a different perspective and a different way of thinking about the world and what's what's happening to our system. Um, and it was it was kind of interesting because I think the biggest swath of common ground was that we're all so frustrated by our political system. You know, it doesn't matter if you voted for Trump or Bernie or Clinton or or even if you're me running for office, there's this gen general widespread sense that politics has let us down. It's not serving its most basic functions and we don't feel represented. Um, and that's really why why I ran for office. And, um, you know, from there we built just incredible relationships in this little this little mini movement in this in this rural rain rural main house district, um, you know, and, and we ended up winning. Chloe, uh, I wonder okay. if you could uh, recount a conversation with a constituent that was particularly memorable and that kind of illustrates how you were able to reach across a partisan divide to connect with a person who was your neighbor who you were hoping would vote for you. One of the most memorable stories happened in 2018. I was canvassing in Jefferson, which is one of the more conservative towns in my district. I had pulled up to this guy's house and he was working on his snowmobiles in his garage which, with a bunch of friends. Um, he came up to me and I was like, hey, I'm Chloe, I'm running for a state rep. And he immediately fired back with one question, which was, do you believe in Medicaid expansion? And I said, Yes, I do, because I always try and answer honestly. Um, and he just pointed up his driveway. He said, you can leave now. And I, you know, because I'm, I'm also generally a positive person. I was like, oh, this is the easiest conversation ever. He's with me and just saving me some time. That's great. But it took me a few seconds of reading his body language to realize that he was actually telling me to leave because he was done with me. And I was, I was just so taken aback by that, you know, how something could shift in such a, you know, in a 30 second conversation that I literally, what came out of my mouth was, oh my gosh, hold on a second. Can you just tell me what happened here and what you're thinking? I'd love to, I'd love to know, you know, why, where you're at, even if you don't vote for me. Um, and he, he started to tell me this story about how he grew up in the house that he, that he lived in uh, without any electricity or running water. And he's just, you know, he's worked hard his entire life to really make his, make his life work and to provide a good home for his family. And part of that, that thinking and that way of living for him means buying your own healthcare insurance and not, not using the government to get your healthcare. And, um, you know, I just, I just had so much respect for his story and everything that he had gone through in his life. And while I do believe that people deserve to access healthcare through their government, um, you know, we, we don't have to totally agree on that point, but there was so much mutual respect that we were, we were able to move forward and he did end up voting for me. What was, I mean, that's remarkable. I can kind of picture the body language, 
you know, where he just shuts you down uh, with one sentence. What do you think was the key? What, how did you keep that door ajar that he had just about slammed in your face? You know, I think so much of how we're taught to campaign and the models of campaigning are, are just really extractive, you know, and they're really data driven. So it's like, how many doors have you knocked? How many strong supporters have you identified? And we don't really take the time to connect with people on a, on a human level. You know, it's just always about a vote. And so I think when we, when we can campaign in a more human way and have the time and space to have conversations like that, that it really changes how it feels. Um, you know, and I think if you're the, if you're the citizen and you have politicians showing up at your door every two years, you only see them once and then you never hear from them again, it makes sense that we would all be primed to just not take it seriously and not want to have the conversation. So we're trying to, to change that a little bit. When and why did Democrats begin losing ground in rural America? What's your take on that? That's a, that's a good question and a very big question that I think um, the book more eloquently lays out than what I'll be able to say right now. But you know, back in 2009, amongst rural voters, there was an even partisan split between Democrats and Republicans. And then, you know, over over a decade later, rural America is is trending to the right at, uh, with a 16 point Republican advantage. So there have been just huge shifts in how rural folks are thinking about the Democratic Party. Um, there's so many things that have contributed to that from, you know, rural folks really lagging behind in almost every economic measure after after the 2008 recession, just the resources um, and support systems haven't haven't reached some some areas like like they have others there are lots of young folks leaving rural communities the democratic infrastructure in rural places also hasn't received the kind of investment that that it deserves and that it needs so there are you know there's so many incredible rural progressive organizers and democratic county committees who are doing great work in rural places they need more resources and more support to be able to to run good candidates and that their candidates have the support that they need and that there's a conversation around these issues year round, not just um, every two years when it's when it's election time. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff. And, it, you know, as the Dems kind of withdrew from rural spaces, that void was really effectively filled by outlets like Fox News, for example, that have just really focused on a, on a very different message that, that's very anti-Democrat, and it's very hard to, to come back from that. Two years after you won uh, an, an upset win to uh, become a state rep in Maine, you ran for state Senate, and you weren't just running against anyone. You were running against one of the top-ranking, most powerful Republicans in the Maine legislature, the, uh, the minority leader in the Senate. Um, what was your approach to, and what made you even think you could win that race? I'm sure that most people told you it was going to be impossible. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of folks who were very shocked at the decision and said that, that we couldn't do it. And also a lot of supporters as well who were with us the whole way. Um, you know, and, and as, 
as in 2018, our 2020 campaign was made possible by so many volunteers and the support of the local Democrats, you know, it was, it was truly a community effort. Um, you know, for me and for Canyon, we, we come at this work from an organizer's perspective, from the, from the place of wanting to build movements that have durable political power, not just enough power to get one person elected. So when we had the opportunity to run for state Senate in 2020, it felt like a movement building opportunity because the Senate districts are quite a bit larger in Maine, it's like 38,000 people compared to about 9,000 folks in the House District. Um, that, that size is also slightly more comparable to what we see in other states. So, you know, it just seemed like, you know, can, can we scale up some of the stuff that we used in 2018 and can it work on a larger scale? Um, you know, and, and we'd also been asked by Senate leadership to run and that was, that was a huge honor. So we, we decided to take the leap and similar to 2018, um, with the huge exception of the pandemic, we, you know, we just were really rooted in the community, focused on talking to people, and just really committed to um, to a positive, authentic politics as, as much as we could. So it's not possible in a district of 36,000 people to go to everyone's door. Um, what would and also the idea of building a movement and not just electing a candidate? What did that look like on the scale of a Senate district? It um, was really different because of COVID. You know, it we we had really exciting plans for just teams of of canvassers to be out talking with folks. Um, you know, instead I, I went door knocking by myself in a very COVID safe way, but. Um, you know, candidates and, and volunteers use what's called a universe, which is a targeted strategic group of folks to talk to. And so when we say that, you know, we were talking to folks who have never been contacted by a Democrat before, it's usually because that universe is, is quite small and more focused on Democratic support. Um, but for our districts, we, we felt like we needed a different approach. So we you know, we scaled that up again, had, uh, you know, the, the universe that we used was about four times larger than what um, the traditional party candidate uses in Maine. And uh, we just, we, you know, I knocked on 13,314 doors in 2020, which put my total about over 20,000 for the past two cycles. We had volunteers writing postcards and making phone calls and putting up signs. And we had outdoor gatherings and you know, we just, um, it was, it was a community affair. And I, I think one of the things that we're most proud of in 2020 was that when the pandemic hit, we stopped campaigning as was the right thing to do, but we had access to a voter database and we had hundreds of volunteers signed up with us already. And we, we pivoted that all those resources towards, um, COVID mutual aid and ended up calling, every single senior in the district over 13,500 phone calls, just making sure people were okay and getting them what they needed. Um, everything from food to prescription pickups to rides to chemotherapy. And that was really, you know, we wanted to use our campaign for the community. And that was just a, one of the best ways that we could do it. What do you think other Democrats and for that matter, any other candidates should learn from your two victories? You know, I, I think there, you know, I don't think our experience is that unique. There are candidates 
here in Maine and across the country who are running and winning in, in these conservative districts. I think the point is that we need more of it. We need more investment in rural America. We need more support for progressive candidates in, in more conservative communities. And so the, you know, the purpose of the book was trying to say, okay, what are the actual concrete lessons that we learned from the high level strategy to the on the ground nitty gritty um, that could potentially be helpful for other candidates and other campaigns that are trying to do this work. I think some of the some of the lessons that we learned will work in other states and some may not and um, but we were, you know, we, we brought our collective experience with Canyon's campaign working, 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 sorry, Canyon's experience working pretty high up in the Bernie campaign and working on a state Senate campaign in North Carolina and my experience in Maine working on on smaller campaigns here in Maine and then our direct experiences campaigning ourselves you know it just there were some themes there that we that we saw could really um, match whatever whatever context we were in and um, and we hope some of it is helpful. What is next for you Chloe what do you have your eye on politically? Well, Canyon and I are starting a nonprofit to really support folks doing this work in rural areas. I think there's, like I said, a lot more power in movement building and getting lots of people elected than, than just me. Um, and I'm also going to law school next year here in Maine, which I'm really excited about. Um, so further, further the policy making knowledge. Well, let's turn now to the co-author of Dirt Road Revival and the campaign manager for Senator Chloe Maxman, Canyon Woodward. Woodward grew up in rural North Carolina and the Cascade Mountains of Washington. He's also an elite trail runner and a member of the Green Racing Project running team based in Craftsbury, Vermont. Woodward and Maxman were classmates at Harvard and co-founders of Divest Harvard, the Climate Action Group. Woodward cut his teeth in campaigns working for Bernie Sanders. I asked him what he learned on the Sanders campaign. Yeah, so I had the opportunity to work as a regional field director for Bernie in 2015 and 2016 um, down in a super rural corner of South Carolina, not too far from where I grew up in the North Carolina mountains. Um, and then, and then um, after the primary, worked on a state campaign back in North Carolina. And those were those were super formative experiences. You know, I think I think Bernie spoke to me and a lot of folks of our generation who were deeply, deeply invested in the climate movement and other organizing spaces um, just attracted us to his campaign and his his way of seeing electoral po politics as such a crucial tool um, in addition to, to movement organizing. And I, th I learned a lot through those campaigns. I think, I think I learned the power of bringing organizing skills to an electoral politics setting. And, and then also learned some things that um, we felt like could be improved on in terms of campaign culture and the way things are measured in particular, like Chloe mentioned, the focus on numbers above all else, um, measuring the number of conversations as opposed to the quality of conversations, I think was something that was really key um, and trying to go into our campaigns for Chloe with a focus on what's, what's the quality of the conversations? Are we really moving people? 
So, Kenyon, you were organizing in South Carolina. I mean, Bernie, um, you know, Democrats do not do well in South Carolina. Bernie uh, didn't win in South Carolina. What did you learn even from the loss there that Bernie experienced? Yeah, um, I mean, that was honestly, I, I just learned so much about the way that campaigns are run, having never, you know, I'd never even been to a phone bank before at that point in my life before joining the Bernie campaign. So um, I think the biggest takeaway from me was that if you, if you really focus on building a campaign that's rooted in the community and the people that the volunteer the volunteer aspect of it can be everything you know we people were so inspired by bernie and coming out in the hundreds to to go door to door and talk to their neighbors and and that was a pretty stark contrast to the more consultant driven campaigns and that's something that we really leaned into in maine was was making it all about building community and building up volunteer leadership and volunteer teams to go door to door. You write in your book that the Democratic Party has forsaken rural America, relinquishing a tremendous amount of political power that has left our fight for social justice on the brink of despair. So against that backdrop of despair and defeat, um, how do you start the campaign for Chloe. What did the two of you come up with as an antidote to despair and defeat? Yeah, I mean, we we had no idea if if Chloe could win or if she even had a, a shot in this district that had gone Republican by sixteen points on average, and you know was also in, mostly in the oldest county by age in Maine, and you know she's a 25 year old climate activist. Um, not sure, not sure how that would go, but our it was such a bleak time in the wake of 2016, Trump getting elected, having having worked on these campaigns and feeling like, yeah, just feeling a lot of defeat and despair following 2016. And you know, it was a choice to to lean into hope for for what we could find through taking action. And I think that's that's been a consistent theme through our organizing journey from, from divestment to the political work of just taking the leap and having having faith in, in the process and what we'd build along the way and that it would be meaningful regardless of the outcome. And in, you know, in this case, Chloe, Chloe won in, in a really conservative district and that that's given me a lot of hope to push back on this democratic narrative that you can't win in rural America, or that if you do, that you have to be a really moderate kind of Democrat to do it. And, um, and that's just not the case. So you will, especially in the wake of this uh, excellent book, Dirt Road Revival, no doubt be asked to consult with other candidates who want to repeat uh, your and Chloe's victory what is it uh, you're going to tell them when you show up in a place, perhaps a rural place, perhaps a place that looks like where you grew up in North Carolina? Yeah, lead lead with empathy, listening, and 
investing in in community you know like like i've said the in in maine we were we were advised to spend almost two-thirds of our budget on consultants to to pay for mailers and advertisements and things like that and instead we used most of that money to um, pay for pay for staff to give volunteers the training and support that they needed to build out this huge huge grassroots campaign to go door to door and have the capacity to have thousands and thousands of conversations with voters um, where we just showed up and we listened to them and we engaged in respectful dialogue that really cut through a lot of the acrimony um, that we were seeing on the presidential and U.S. Senate level. And I think that makes all of the difference. Chloe, let me uh, turn back to you and ask, um, what will what do you think it will take to scale up the work that you're doing in Maine to a national level to reverse um, the really dramatic, um, you know, reversal of fortunes that Democrats have had in rural areas, which, as you point out in your book, is really a phenomenon only of the last 15 or 20 years. It's, it's going to take a lot. I think it's going to take a variety of strategies, a lot of which are really specific to the communities that folks are organizing in and trying to represent. Um, but I think some, some general themes are really that are really around investment and resources. You know, I think we need we need investment in political infrastructure in rural America all year round and every single year, not just not just in an election year when we're trying to win votes. That's how we build authentic relationships and can have meaningful conversations that don't feel so extractive and that can form the foundation for actual political shifts. Um, and that certainly requires more, you know, more more time and money. You know, I think another part of this is that in you know i have friends who have run for office in in rural in more urban communities and they work really hard no doubt at all um but it's easy for them to you know knock 200 doors a day whereas up where i live it's you know lucky lucky to do 100 that's that's about all one can do in a day and i'm sure in other rural communities even that's a stretch so it just requires more time for the candidate which means that candidates themselves need more support you know financially and within the structure of the campaign to be able to knock and it also means more volunteer resources to be able to go and knock all those doors and have all the conversations that are needed it's just a different way of thinking about campaigning that isn't um quite as intense and fast-paced as what we're used to um you know so i think if organizers were were, were well paid and there was a good infrastructure in rural places and candidates had the had the support to really be able to to do that kind of work that we could that we could see some shifts um, and no doubt people are already already doing that all across the country we just we need more of it one um, of the and uh, I, yeah go on oh sorry I just I have to I just I'm so sorry that I have to leave in a minute and I just wanted to say um thank you and I'm sorry <laughs> that's okay well good luck a uh, quick question when you're in law school will you stay in the legislature I'm actually not running again to be able to focus more on the movement organizing side of things. We we have a part-time citizen legislature here in Maine, which makes it pretty challenging to do um, to do other work without just being 
um, incredibly overworked. So I'm going to focus more on the movement, movement building side of things and getting lots of people elected to office. Well, Chloe Maxman, good luck in your next chapter. Thank you so much, David. Uh, Canyon, um, as I think you've often done, uh, you and Chloe pass the baton back and forth in your work. Uh, talk about this new organization that uh, you two are launching. Yeah, thank you. So it's it's called Dirt Road Organizing, and it's a 501c4 um, based based in Maine. And it's the focus of it is is really to build that people powered, um, basically the the foundation of all of our campaigns, like we've been describing, to give folks the trainings on approaching their neighbors with deep canvassing, listening, respect, and shared values. And so the idea is to go, go into communicate communities across the state and across the country and just share, share from our experiences of doing this work and lean into cultivating grassroots leadership um, to, to be able to support campaigns that, that need that need more support on the ground in these kinds of districts. So much of the appeal of, you know, Trump Republicans, uh, the appeal of Fox News and uh, that other famous resident of Maine, uh, Tucker Carlson, who people <laughs> may not realize, but is actually broadcasting from Bryant Pond, Maine. Um, so much of it is based on appeals to racism. Um, how do you counter that? Yeah. Uh, it's it's really difficult it's it's insidious and it's something that has really blown up i think over the past the past decade especially and i think we counter that through leaning into to building relationships and and rebuilding trust you know i think one of our great mistakes as as a party has been to abandon the organizing infrastructure in rural areas and that has let those relationships fade away and and it created a huge void of uncontested ground that the right wing just came rushing into with a force that i don't think anyone anticipated um but that has been just totally inflaming racism and, and xenophobia and i think that the the most effective way to push back against that is by having face-to-face -face conversations and building building those relationships where you know we don't necessarily change someone's entire worldview in the conversation but you be, we begin to have some empathy for where where the where each other are coming from and and you can slowly shift the narrative back through just being in the community and and putting forward your own views and having a receptive ear by having a relationship as opposed to um, as opposed to folks only getting our message through a very distorted lens of Fox News or Donald Trump. Chloe mentioned the importance of investing in rural communities uh, in rebuilding these shattered infrastructure and, and neglected infrastructure in many of these places. Right now, we're at a moment where there's been historic investments in infrastructure with the COVID relief money, and yet 
Biden's, you know, approval numbers are really uh, in the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, it, it's really complicated, you know, as far as as far as the infrastructure investments, you know, so much, so much of that just takes time. And, you know, so much of there's so much great stuff earmarked for rural communities, but it's it's going to be months and realistically more like years before we see a lot of a lot of that impact. And then I think beyond that, it's um, it's super important to to message it. You know, folks don't necessarily notice, you know, direct stimulus checks are one thing, but, um, you know, more more system wide investments are are easy to go overlooked um, unless you are there in the communities really messaging that well and that takes you know for a nationwide strategy on that 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 takes a lot of work and and i'm sure it's something that they're thinking about and working on but it takes time to get that message across you also grew up in a rural area in north carolina uh i believe in and also in washington state do i have that correct yeah that's right what does your experience growing up in these places how does that um, influence what you think needs to happen as politicians approach these communities? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up primarily in a super small town in Western North Carolina, um, Madison Cawthorn's district, who you, you've probably heard of recently. Yeah, <laughs> we, he's having some Mark, troubles right now. <laughs> yeah, Mark Meadows before that, Trump's former chief of staff. So uh, we really send our best from Western North Carolina. I hope that we can turn that around. But, um, you know, I, I think that where I grew up, when I was young, you know, we had a Democratic representative in Congress and, you know, he was a more conservative one, but he was a Democrat nonetheless. And, you know, I think overwhelmingly our, our message is that it's not it's not too late to stop the bleeding in rural rural communities and we you know we don't have to be stuck with with the kind of right-wing extremists like Cawthorn that so many of our districts are putting putting forward and that are not doing anything good for our well, communities. let me ask you ken because this is a unique opportunity i mean from afar we watch a guy like madison Cawthorn who, you know, is constantly trolling and provoking people. Um, and now, of course, this is coming back to bite him uh, in a big way, um, though we shall see uh, at the polls. Coming from his district, what is his appeal? Well, I mean, I think at the most fundamental level, um, it's just it's become a really Republican district. And so the gerrymandering here has has made it so that basically whoever wins the Republican primary here is going to have a really good shot no matter what at, at winning. So I think I think that's that's the biggest thing as far as his, his appeal. You know, um, he, he was seen as a young a young kind of star of the right wing, almost like a analog to AOC on on the right, which is which is wild. But um, yeah, there was a lot of energy and, and a lot of 
independent wealth behind the campaign that that really got a positive image out there the first go round, and, and now that's obviously starting to crumble. Um, but I think I think his election again illustrates the importance of investing in state level politics too, because of the gerry gerrymandering issue. You know, in North Carolina, we have a Democratic governor, and yet we have super majorities, Republican super majorities in the state legislature, and we send an overwhelmingly Republican delegation to Congress. And part of that is because of rural areas trending red, but part of a huge part of that also is because Republicans have captured the state legislatures with which draw those lines. And, um, and therefore we've ended up with super gerrymandered districts that are incredibly undemocratic. If you were to run a campaign or advise a candidate in Madison Cawthorn's district, where would you begin? I'd begin in the far, the far west, as far, <laughs> as far out of Asheville and the city as possible. Um, you know, you see what candidates like Fetterman are doing in, in Pennsylvania, where it's really appealing to every, every county, every vote is, is his slogan, I think. And um, I think that folks, folks feel really, really distant from the political process um, out here, out here in the westernmost parts of the state. And I think it, it, it's going to take a, a huge investment over multiple cycles of getting back in the community and drumming up the Democratic base, which there is plenty of us out here, but it, it feels like we're overwhelmingly outnumbered because there just hasn't been um, the investment in organizing that we need. Hmm. Canyon, what gives you hope? Um, you, I'm sure, experience equal parts, if not more losses than wins. Um, and of course, mm -hmm. Chloe's and your story of winning in Maine um, is an outlier, uh, because as you uh, make the point over and over in your book, Democrats have become really good at losing in these kinds of communities. So what keeps you pushing forward and in this, uh, what at times must feel like a real uphill run? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, young, young folks like Chloe going back and investing in, in their communities and taking leadership, I think is the biggest thing. Um, I always, I always go back to the quote of um, my Ma Maimonides, who is a 12th century philosopher that our mentor at Harvard always quoted, which is hope is the belief in the plausibility of the possible, as opposed to the necessity of the probable. Um, and I think to me, that illustrates that, you know, hope necessarily implies uncertainty. And we never know what the outcomes are going to be in this work. But we have to we have to lean into that uncertainty, knowing that we're not going to win every time. Um, but the difficult work of bringing folks together to organize and to strive for a better world is valuable in and of itself in and of itself. And I think organizing and bringing the community together like we did in these districts shows the the power politically of, of being able to do that and win and we just need people doing that all over the country hmm. is there a place that you have your eye on where you might like to run a campaign next or already plan to really focused on, on the work of of 
the nonprofit and um, and yeah, no no specific race, um, really just investing in in rural communities all over so that they can jump in and, and take those skills to the campaigns that, that they see fit or to issue organizing or, or all of the above. Finally, Canyon, I know that you are an elite trail runner. You're a member of the <laughs> green racing team in Craftsbury. Um, what lesson do you take from your trail running experience? Uh, what lesson carries over to your political work? Oh man, there's, there's so many, but, um, gosh, I think one of the things that strikes me about trail running and, and political work is I think kind of a threefold connection to the sense of self and, you know, the values, the values that, that are important to us in, in political work and being able to express that in the world and, and in trail running, just a, a connection to the soul and, and being able to process things out on the, on the trails and then a connection to the land and a connection to, to the community and the folks that are, are around you. And I think those are things that all of us, all of us seek and that I, I find expressed in, in both trail running and politics. Canyon Woodward, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having us, David.